If you guys got a Bible, uh, if you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 15, that's where we're going to be at this morning. It's, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, good to be back with you guys. It, it was actually um, kind of a weird week. Uh, well, last week was a, w- a weird Sunday, obviously, and that's in no way uh, referring to Adam. Um, it was just the fact that uh, we, it was a few months ago, uh, realized that uh, we had all kind of accidentally uh, scheduled uh, to be gone uh, last Sunday. Uh, I got a text from Ed uh, saying, hey, uh, how long ago did you uh, schedule uh, being gone on uh, July 18th? And I was like, a really long time ago, man, way before you ever thought about it. So don't ask me to uh, be here. But um, yeah, so uh, Ed and his family have been over the last week, still are, I think, uh, in Hawaii. Uh, Aram and his family, they went to Lake Tahoe. Uh, Justin last week was uh, getting ready and already down, uh, setting up for high school camp. And then um, I lost because well, we decided to take our three little kids camping. And so we were, uh, we were camping. And I was like trying to think about that. I was like, who had the worst week? And I think even with everything Justin probably had to do with like all those high schoolers, taking three small kids camping definitely wins out. So I would not recommend it to anybody. But uh, that's where we were at, and that's what was going on, but it's really good to be back with you guys. Uh, this morning in Luke chapter 15, we're actually looking at verses 11 through 32, but we're not going to read all that because it's a pretty familiar story, and so I didn't want to bog us down uh, in it. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And if, if you've never heard uh, the story of the parable of the prodigal son, not a big deal because I'm going to kind of recap it uh, for you. But it's a story where this, uh, this rich man, this rich landowner, has two sons, actually. And uh, the younger son comes to uh, his father and he says, hey, I want my piece of the inheritance now. But it's a whole lot worse than how that sounds because what he's telling his father is, you see, the idea with, I mean, we, I think we all know how inheritance, an inheritance works, right? You only get that when the person dies. Um, and, and the idea was is that when uh, the father would die, that his oldest son would get two-thirds of all the property and the youngest son would get a third. And so the youngest son is coming and saying, I want my third now. And, and how he would have to do that is he'd have to sell off the land that he has. So he's actually saying, I want you to get rid of what you own. Don't just give me money. Like you have to go like liquidize all of your assets and, and do this thing for me. But it's, it goes even worse than that because what he's saying to the father is essentially, I wish you were dead. My life would be better if I was in control and could do things my way. It would be better without you in it. And so not only do I want you to sell off the land that you live off of and have a harder life than you do now because of what I want to do, I don't really care that it's going to affect you that way because my life would be better without you in it. I wish you were dead. And so the son does this. And and the crazy thing about it is the father has every right to disown the son. But instead of doing that, he graciously gives the son what he asked for. And we know that the son goes off and he goes to a faraway land and he squanders it all, wastes it all away in a pretty quick amount of time. And, and so he finds himself one day in a pigsty, taking care of the pigs, but also sleeping with them, eating with them, all, just a pretty miserable life. And it dawns on him. He says, you know what, I, I, I've screwed up pretty bad, but things would be better back home Not where I was before because I've screwed up so bad. There's no way in the world I can possibly ever be considered my father's son again. But maybe, just maybe, he'll take me back in as one of his workers, one of his servants. And they live better than I'm living right now, so that would at least be good. 
And, and, and so the son sets off and, uh, to find his father. And before, he, as he's a long way off, we're told, uh, before he could ever get to the house, before he could ever say anything, the father comes running out and embraces the son and welcomes him back. And he doesn't just welcome him back in. He, he, actually, he actually says, put the robe on him. What he means is put my robe on him. Uh, this is a big deal. This never happened. And, and so the son not only is accepted back in as a son, which would be miraculous, he's actually exalted in a way that he never was before. And, and it's this amazing picture that Jesus is painting for us of the mercy and the grace of God and what God does and, and the fact that God stoops to a level that we would not expect him to. You see, men in this ancient culture, they didn't run. They didn't go to people. People of power came to them because he was a man of power. And, and, and so this, it's this amazing picture of God's grace and the need for God's grace. And, and we read it and we like this story. It seems pretty straightforward. I mean, it, it's amazing the idea that we can screw things up pretty bad and yet God's grace is going to be there, that he's going to search us out, that he's going to be excited when we do come back. We even know, as we listen to it, we know a few prodigals that need to hear it, right? And every time that we hear the story of the prodigal, someone would say, oh man, I, I know someone that needs Jesus in that way. If, if they would only accept it, if they would only know how much God loves them and, 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 and his grace and how gracious he is. But you see, the amazing thing about this is it really isn't a story about one son that's lost. It's a story about two lost sons. See, to be a younger brother, you have to have an older brother. And oftentimes, though, when we talk about the story of the prodigal son, we end with just that, that prodigal. But there's another son, and it turns out he's just as lost as his younger brother is. We see there in uh, Luke uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 25 through 32, we read that, as the father has welcomed the younger son back in, that his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But, meaning the older son, he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father by saying, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, your son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And hearing this, the father says to his oldest son, he says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is, is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. I don't know about you guys, but I read the second half of the parable of the prodigal son. Really the parable of the two sons. And I feel a bit conflicted. I feel a bit conflicted because... The older son is wrong, right? I mean, that's pretty easy to see. Like his, his tone, the way he talks to his dad, the things that he says, even the fact that Jesus is telling the story and he's kind of like holding up these two sons as examples. You're kind of like, okay, I think I see what's going on here and that sort of thing. Like the older son is wrong. It's pretty obvious. But there's a part in me that gets what he's saying, right? 
I mean, it's kind of like one of those deals. It's like, yeah, I mean, he's out of line, but he's not wrong, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that the one who is obedient, the one who's stuck around, the one who is faithful isn't celebrated. And then not only is this younger son who has screwed everything up, made everyone's lives harder, allowed to come back in, and then, get this, the two-thirds of the property that are left, he's going to get a third of that when the father dies again because he's been brought back into the family. Crazy, right? But then on top of that, he's exalted to this place. He's celebrated in such a way that not even the son who stuck around, the son who was obedient, the son who was dutiful, the son who was faithful, is celebrated. It doesn't seem right that this guy screws everything up and gets back in in this way, does it? Um, there's, there's another story um, that Jesus tells another parable that kind of elicits kind of the, the, the same thoughts. Uh, it's one where Jesus is talking about a landowner who goes out to hire workers uh, uh, to, to work his land. And uh, he tells them, he, uh, this, uh, in the morning he goes out and he finds these workers and he just, uh, says, hey, if you come and work for me for the day, I will pay you a day's wages. Does that sound fair? And they're like, yeah. And so he says, okay, come on, let's, let's go work. And then he goes out a, a little bit later, about midday, to, to find some more workers. And he finds a group of workers and says, hey, I will pay you a day's wages when I'm paying these other guys if you come and work for me for the rest of the day. Does that sound good to you? And they're like, oh, yeah, that sounds really good. And then he goes out a little bit later, and, and he finds another group uh, towards the end of the day. And he says, hey, if, if you come work for me for the rest of the day, I'll pay you a day's wages. Does that sound good? And it's like, holy cow, like a day's wages for three hours of work, like government jobs aren't even that good. Of course it sounds, you know, of course it sounds good. And then when there comes time for the, uh, uh, the, owner, the landowner to, to pay everybody, the, the guys who were there at the start of the day working all day long kind of get a little bit upset that the guys who haven't worked as much of them are getting the same pay. And the landowner says to him, says, what? I mean, we agreed on this. What, you know, I'm giving you what we agreed on. And we read that story, and it's kind of the same deal, right? Where we're like, yeah, I mean, I'm... I know it's pretty obvious what Jesus is saying, and I know that's right, but it still just feels a little off. It doesn't feel right that those who are good, those who get it earlier on, kind of like they, they're the ones that do the work. They're the ones that make the sacrifices, and yet like they still get like the same thing that the other people get. It, it doesn't feel right, right? I mean, we know what the right answer is, and we're thankful that God's grace and mercy works this way. But, I mean, have you ever thought about, it doesn't feel right that you, like, that maybe, like, the people that have, like, gotten it earlier on in their life, that have, that, like, come to church, that sacrifice, that give, that serve, and everything like that, like, they get the same reward as a person that lives their life the way they want to their entire life and then comes to Jesus on their deathbed? I mean, I know it's like, I mean, who cares, right? Like, we get to go to heaven, but I mean, wouldn't it just be nice if maybe they got like a little bit less of heaven, like to make the sacrifice worth it, right? I mean, because we sit there and we're like, look, I give up things. I, I, I give up things. I, I come to church on Sunday. I come to church on Sundays even when the lead pastor doesn't come to church on Sundays. I, I, I give up things for this. And so it doesn't seem necessarily fair for a God who declares himself to be just, that takes pride, can we say, in being just, to say that people that have done less, known less, been around less time, get the same thing. I mean, isn't, when it really comes down to it, isn't being good what it's all about? And so those of us that have been better 
should get better. I mean, that seems to make the most sense, right? The reason I think that these stories are conflicting at best is because there is, there's a big lie that we're told from the very get-go in our lives, um, from the moment we're born, that we believe in. And that is so deep that, like, we don't even, we don't even know it's there. And what's more is we can come to Jesus as saving faith in, in Christ and, and, and love God and yet never realize that we have, haven't dealt with this lie yet. And it's the lie that we're told and then we tell ourselves over and over again, I have something to prove. And you might say, well, no, I don't feel that way because I, I, I just do, you know, what I want to do, and I don't really care what people think. I, there are some of us that believe this lie and live through this lie, and then there are some of us that believe it and say, I'll never do it, and so I don't care. But either way, we believe in it, that we have something to prove. Some of us say, I'll show that I can be worth it, that I can prove that I'm worthy, that I have meaning. Others of us say, I'm not ever going to be able to do that, so I'm not going to be concerned with it. And so we kind of live actually like, in opposition to it. But either way, like this is a lie that we are all bred into. This lie of proving that we have worth. That show ourselves and other people that we have meaning and something to bring to the table. Of proving that we are the people we say we are. And the thing is, is that when we come to Christ, we, it'd be easy to think that like, when we come to Christ and we believe in his grace and we accept his grace as the younger brother did, the grace of the Father, that all of a sudden this is just like vanished. It, it, it goes out the window. But really, it is so ingrained in us that you, what happens is eventually we stop trying to maybe prove to ourselves, maybe even other people, but we want to prove to God that we're worthy of what God has for us. We want to prove to God that we're up to the task, that we can do what he set before us, that we actually do belong. So we set out to do just that. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at with the parable of these two sons. See, we see the obvious. We see how lost the younger brother is. Everybody can spot that from a mile away, right? Like everybody knows the younger brother in the family. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, mm mm-hmm, yeah, okay. And what's more is we know that grace is for people like him. Grace is, the reason Jesus died is for the younger brother, right? Like, they're the ones that need it. The ones that have screwed up too bad to ever fix it themselves. There's no way he can possibly come back from this. He's done it now. Gonna need Jesus to come in. And we can all even recognize when we maybe have been the younger brother. We, we look at it and we say, I once was him. But by the grace of God, I'm not him anymore and I can prove it. That's what we say, right? I'm beyond that. I've moved on. I, I, I'm on to bigger things. I'm in the meat now. And so I can prove that I belong. I can prove I'm up to snuff. I can prove what God has done in my life. 
Tim Keller says that for most of us, we have in our life, we have repented of sin, but we haven't repented for the reason that we ever did anything good. We know what it looks like to repent of what we've done wrong, but it is a very foreign concept for us to give ourselves to a type of repentance where we ask God to forgive us for trying to be our own Lord and Savior. For trying to be good enough to be worthy of his salvation. Of trying to prove to him and ourselves that we're something that we're not. See, what it looks like to us, and I think maybe the reason, like, we don't talk about the older brother a ton is because the older brother's way looks better to us. I mean, given the choice of telling your dad you wish he was dead and going off and squandering money and being in a pigsty or just keeping your mouth shut, being obedient, and doing what you're supposed to do, which one sounds better, right? Well, it's the obedient one. It's the older brother way. But what Jesus is saying is even if you take the path of the older brother that looks better, you aren't actually any better. See, Jesus is willing to tell us oftentimes things that other people won't. It is hard for other people to look us in the eye and say, it's great that you serve. It's great that you give. It's great that you're present and you're faithful. But guess what? None of that matters when it comes down to salvation. It's hard for a pastor to stand up in front of you on a Sunday morning and say, I, it's amazing that you guys do keep coming to church even, even when your pastors won't, but it doesn't matter. And it's hard for a pastor to say that because it's really nice to have people to talk to and see and preach to on a Sunday morning. It matters to have people. So we do kind of like, we won't, we kind of skirt around this thing. It's like, yeah, Sunday's not required, but it's like really highly, it's kind of like CDC guidelines. It's highly recommended that you come to church. And we know what that means. See, when we're successful, when we're faithful, this is the hard thing for us to hear. When we're successful, when we're faithful, when we're looked up to by other people, when we're considered good, and what's more, we have the resume to prove it. Jesus says you need God's grace just as much as the younger brother does, and probably you actually need it more. Why? Because what the older brother shows us is that you can be, we can be in the family and be just as estranged, just as distant. That we can be serving faithfully and just as lost. That we can actually hate the fact that we're here while we're here. And the really scary thing is that the longer we do this, the harder it will be to accept God's grace to come home. To accept the invitation that he gives us to come in and enter into and celebrate the, the feast that he's inviting us to. The longer and longer that we live in the midst of God and his grace, while still living under the lie that we have something to prove, the harder and harder it is to show grace to the people that really need it. 
ourselves. I, um, this is like the part of the sermon where um, I tell you how difficult it's been this week to, I've like, I've fought this sermon all week long. Um, there's so much to this parable, there's so much to this passage, there's so much to talk about, there's so many different ways to go. Basically, like, it was like at first, like, I had like 10 different things I wanted to talk about, I was like, I think that's too many. And, um, and so I, I pared it down and I had three things. And, and then I was like, how do I talk about it? How do I say it? How do I say it in a way that's memorable and that sort of thing? And it was like, nothing felt right, nothing felt good. And then finally I was like, no, three's too many. I, I, I need to have two things. And I got it down to two things. And then this morning I was just like, two's still too many. It, it, there's just one thing to talk about. And what's more, I was just like, forget it. I'm not even going to try to come up with a good way to talk about it. We're just going to talk about it pretty plainly and straightforward. The reason it is so hard for us to show ourselves grace, the grace that God shows us, to give ourselves that room in our life is because it hits us in the one place that hurts the most. That is our self-image. Grace challenges us to see ourselves in a way that we have worked really hard to get beyond and be better than. And because of that reason, beginning to ever show ourselves grace and through allowing God's grace to encapsulate our life and not just be something we partake in, but be the air we breathe, then showing grace to other people means changing the way we see ourselves. We see this with the older brother. If we go back and we look at his words, I mean, just, just look at like, this isn't a statement that he had to think long and hard about. He knew exactly who he was, where he was, and how everybody else around him stacked up to him. Look at this. He says, look to his dad. These many years I have served you. And he probably could have even listed off the ways that he had served him and sacrificed for him. And he says, I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. I'm not even asking for much, he says. I've done a lot. I've sacrificed a lot. I've given a lot. I'm here. And yet, you've killed a calf for him, and I don't even get a goat. He has obeyed. He has worked. And let's just say the younger brother hasn't done those things, and he knows it. He knows what he looks like. He knows how he stacks up. He has an image of himself that his way is better. His way is the right way. He has done things the way you're supposed to do him. And it's pretty obvious that he has this image of himself and he has the image of everybody else around him. God's grace challenges us to see ourselves differently. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was a uh, Catholic uh, thinker, writer, theologian, and uh, during his lifetime, there was a newspaper that once uh, put out a question to its readers asking for responses back, and the question was simple. The newspaper asked, what's wrong with the world? 
And a uh, pretty simple question, seems to be one everybody seem, is asking these days. And, uh, you know, I asked the first service, uh, you know, what do you guys think is wrong with the world? You know, I was like, no, wait, don't say that. Um, I just have to look at Facebook to know what everybody thinks is wrong with the world. And so, um, but everybody puts it out there. Everybody has an opinion of what's wrong with the world. And so G.K. Chesterton, seeing this, had to let his opinion be known. And so he wrote back a letter to them saying, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. I mean, we all know what's wrong with the world. It's the younger brother. It's the people who have no regard for other people, that they live free lives, that they do whatever they want, that they're not dutiful, obedient, good sons. And yeah, maybe we were that person at one point in time, but we've grown up. We've matured. And so we've chosen the better path. We've chosen the better way. And so because of that, we're right. We're not what's wrong with the world. See, our inability to even begin to entertain what Chesterton says here, it's me. I'm what's wrong with the world. It's a clear sign that we are still living under that lie of having something to prove. Because when we have something to prove, being wrong is death. Being wrong means we do not measure up. We have fallen short. And so because of that, we no longer belong. Um, so we were camping uh, this last weekend with our kids, and it was the last day that we were camping, and we were sitting around with nothing to do because we had packed up. We were camping with uh, some family, and they, we were waiting on them to still pack up. And, um, you know, the last day of camping with anybody, especially, you know, three small kids, things do get a little testy and, and stuff. And so uh, the kids were trying to entertain themselves, and uh, so we were, um, we were camping, so they were playing with sticks. And Eden, uh, our oldest, she, she, had a, she had a stick, and she was sharpening it on a rock. And normally that's something that we'd be like, hey, maybe not the best idea. But at that point in time, we were so tired. It was like, well, if one of them stabs the other one, an ER trip's a good excuse to get out of here faster than we're going to get out with them, you know, still packing. And so we allowed it. And uh, so Eden was sharpening the stick. And then um, the, the normal thing happened where her younger sister, Elsie, decided she wanted the stick that Eden had. And so she started getting really fussy wanting the stick. And Eden was like, I'll find her one in the wood, you know, I'll find her one and stuff like that. I was like, Eden, just give her that one and you find one. And of course, that was a you know, the worst thing in the world. How could you ever ask that of me, you know, right? And it's like, we're in the woods. There are sticks around, you know, and stuff. And so after a few times of telling Eden, give her the stick, it was finally, Eden, give her the stick. And Eden got frustrated, really mad, and she takes the stick and she throws it down, almost hitting her sister, didn't hit her sister, but throws it at her feet. And obviously we didn't want her to give her the stick that way. And so Eden got in trouble um, and... To say that my daughter is dramatic would be an understatement. I mean, Eden feels, like the, the, way, the way that we describe Eden is Eden has all the feels. Like, she feels everything. And so the moment that we punished her, instantly it was death to Eden. She just starts, she starts crying and she goes, I don't belong here. And being the great parent that I am, I said, yeah, you're right, you don't belong here. And, uh, and, and instead, Hannah decided to be a better parent, and she was like, Eden, what do you mean you don't belong here? And Eden goes, I don't belong in this family. I don't belong anywhere. 
I just started laughing. I was like, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm not that consoling in, in moments like that. But um, you see, the thing, the thing is, is that for my daughter, the, the thing you have to know about Eden is the thing that Eden wants more than anything. And it's not because we're talking about this. This is who Eden is. Eden wants to prove herself. She wants to prove that she, she is the prototypical oldest child. She's always learning, always, always trying to be better. I mean, Hannah's like, she asked Hannah on Saturday, can we do school today? It's like, what kid does that? And so she's always trying to be better. And what's more is I know she does this because I used to do it. She wants to be involved in adult conversations. And she doesn't want to be involved in adult conversations simply to just be involved. Eden wants to belong and she wants to prove she can hang with adult lines of thinking. I, I, and, I, and I know that because I used to do. I, I used to listen in to, to these adult conversations and be like, I'm going to look for a spot where I can show I know exactly what they're talking about. I can prove that I belong. And so I know that my daughter lives in this world where she is saying, I have to prove I belong, that I am worthy of being in this amazing thing that is called the Eckhart family camping trip. And the moment that she made one mistake to her, it was death. That all of a sudden, she had fallen short of the things she was out to prove. That she was worthy to be a part of our family and to be there with us camping in the woods. Hoping to God that they would finish packing so we could go. In a world where we have to prove ourselves, there is no room for falling short, for even the slightest misstep. You see, the grace of God gives us space to be wrong, gives us space to be corrected, and to know that it in no way has any bearing on who we are or where we fit in. It begins in being able to show and give ourselves the space to be wrong, to be misinformed, to take missteps, to, to, to do that. We're able to begin to show that to others as well. But I was, I was thinking about this, and, and, and I was thinking about her and, 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 and relating to her and, and what it must feel like to always feel like you are one step away from not belonging in your family. And it wasn't very hard for me to relate to because, it, because it's me. And I don't even mean on like some spiritual like level, like it's all of us, but, but it is all of us. I mean, because it's me, because this is who I am. Because she gets it from me. I told the first service, I was like, I'm doing a big thing here, guys, because I'm, I'm admitting to, in front of you all, to my wife, that one of the faults in our children is, is because of me. I've been working really hard to convince her that it's all her and it's all her family. But, see, I'm able to say that my daughter's dramatic because she's just not as good at hiding it as I am. I've gotten really good over the years to hide the fact that I am trying to prove myself to myself. That I'm trying to prove myself to other people and looking for their accolades 
their words of approval. That I'm even trying to prove myself to God that I'm worthy of the thing he's called me to. See, we like to think that we can get better. That we can get beyond this. That we can improve ourselves. The only thing we ever get better at is hiding. That we're out to prove something. That that is the motivation of our heart. God's grace is given to us so that we need it, that we need it all the time, that we need it all around us, that every one of us need it, whether we're the younger brother or the older brother, so that we can live with the, that we can have the ability to live knowing that we have not only been wrong, we probably are wrong, and we will be wrong. And that's okay. Jesus says, you're wrong, get over it. That's what my grace is for, and that's why you need it. It's not life or death. It's not if you're wrong, you're out. You never belonged. You won't belong. It's you're just wrong, and move on. You see, actually, it's great. It's an amazing thing to be able to say this and to be able to believe it because the thing is, it's, like, it's not just that we like, are able to get, like, give ourselves a free pass. It's actually that we're able to finally be real with ourselves. We're, we're able to finally allow the Holy Spirit to talk to us about the things that are really going on in us and to be able to say, maybe I am mistaken. Maybe I'm not about the things I want to think I'm about. Maybe, the, maybe what I've chosen to do is just to simply try to be better than the younger brother, but at the same time, I want the same thing that he does. I want a life free of my father, that I resent the fact that I'm here stuck with him. It's actually great because we get something better than ourselves when we're willing to admit we're wrong. When we live in a world in which we are trying to prove ourselves, and that is everything is wrapped up in that, we get the best we can come up with. And we can come up with some pretty great things. We, get a, we can have a pretty nice resume. We can ex- propel ourselves to some pretty great positions and adulations and, a, and accrue awards. But when we're willing to admit we're wrong and that we need God's grace, we get Jesus and what he's done. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think any of us have done the awesome things he has. What's crazy about it is that the younger brother got what the older brother was after, right? And what's crazy about it is there is nothing my daughter can do to ever screw up being in our family. And it's going to take years because I know, because this has been the story of my life, of drilling into her that she, ha- she can stop worrying about proving whether or not she is a part of our family because she is, and there's nothing that's ever going to change that. And if I can ever get her to just accept that, well, then the sky's the limit. In the same way, God is constantly telling us to stop trying to prove ourselves. Why? Because you're in. You're accepted. Why? Because there's grace for it. 
And don't just trade one bad way of the younger brother for another bad way of the older brother, thinking that now you've, just, you've chosen a better path of proving yourself and bettering yourself. Choose the different way, the completely different way. Choose Jesus, he says. I mean, it sounds really easy, right? It sounds really easy to be like, just, just stop trying. Just stop trying to prove yourself. But it's like the hardest thing in the world to do because when we've lived in a prove-it world, we learn to take confidence in one thing and one thing only. That is what we've done. Not what anybody else has done. Especially, even Jesus. But what we've done, what we can show to, what we can put our hands on. And we learn to keep track of of what we've done and what others have done too. We see this with the older brother, right? He knows everything he's done. He knows everything his brother has done. And we tell ourselves, well, this is just the way it has to be right now. There will be a day that I will have done enough that I'll be able, I see people that I look at, I'm like, they've arrived, they've done it. They are assured of their spot in the family of God. I mean, they know, they, they seem pretty comfortable. When I get to that point, I'll be able to stop all the, like, you know, trying to size myself up and figure out am I doing the right thing and worrying about it and being scared to death that I'm going to take one wrong step and all of a sudden I'm not going to belong anywhere. But the truth is that no one tells us is that it doesn't just turn off like that. That when we live our life based on the foundational principle that we have to prove ourselves— It is the hardest thing in the world to stop having to prove ourselves. It is the hardest thing in the world to find the assurance that we've strived for all of our life. Um, I'm a... Probably my favorite basketball player ever to watch is... um, I hate to say this because he's from North Carolina, but it's Michael Jordan. I'm a product of the 90s, and the Bulls were rocking it in the 90s. And so... Um, I love Michael Jordan. Uh, the thing is, is um, as you know, as you grow up, you kind of learn don't you know learn about your heroes because turns out some of them are just kind of miserable. And uh, Michael Jordan, I would I don't want to like give the guy really a really hard time, but I mean he's kind of a dissatisfied guy when you hear him talk um, these days. And the thing is, is that like what drove him always was the need to prove himself. And the crazy thing is, is most people, a lot of people, say he is the best to have ever played basketball. And so you would think he would have gotten to this point, and he'd be able to say, I've done it. And yet, um, a, a year ago, they, they, ran a part, they ran a documentary on uh, the last season of the Chicago Bulls uh, with Jordan and Scottie Pippen and all this thing. And the thing is, is that um, Michael Wilbon, who uh, would uh, normally write uh, for the Bulls, had a lot of conversations with Michael Jordan. So they were talking to him and interviewing uh, him during this time. And uh, Wilbon said this. He said, the shame of the last dance, as Michael says it, uh, meaning Michael Jordan, is we didn't get the chance. Everybody who's ever played basketball on the playground knows this. Winners keep playing. Winners don't stop. Winners don't get replaced. The winners keep playing. We got next. They didn't have next. That's the chance of the last dance. Michael has told me this a million times. I said, aren't you satisfied with 6-0? and Meaning he went undefeated in the NBA Finals. Six championships, never lost. He sa- Jordan said, no, I wanted to run it back. In a prove-it-or-lose-it world, there is either success or failure, and there is no in-between. Our world is not built on the ideas of grace. 
And so when we live our lives by the way the world operates, that is proving ourselves. We've either done it or we haven't. And the thing is, the dirty secret that nobody tells us about is there is never a place that we will get to that we can be assured that we have done enough. There will always be that question in the back of our minds. Could I have done more? Could I have done it differently? And this is the thing that will keep us in the place that we are at. When you see Michael Jordan talk about that stuff, when you hear him these days, he is dissatisfied, unhappy, and still stuck in the mode of we should have gotten that chance. And the tough thing is the guy's like now in his 50s and even like somebody that loves him and loves watching him play is like, dude, move on already. We will struggle when we live our lives to prove ourselves, not just to us or other people, but to God, even God. We will kill ourselves to have an assurance that will always escape us. Talking about this, uh, Tim Keller says, you know, it, it won't look like us saying we want to run it back and winners get next and winners get to stay and stuff like that. It, but it, it does look pretty familiar to many of us. He says it shows itself, this lack of assurance, every time something goes wrong in our life or a prayer goes unanswered and, and we wonder if we aren't living right in this area or that. It shows up when criticism from others doesn't just hurt our feelings, it devastates us. It's because your sense of God's love is abstract and has little real power in your life and you need the approval of others to bolster your sense of value. He says it shows itself in the fact that you feel irresolvable guilt. When you do something you know is wrong, your conscience torments you for a long time, even after you repent. And since you can't be sure you've repented deeply enough, you beat yourself up over what you did. Nobody can relate to this, right? This is what it looks like to live our lives in the presence of God while still trying to prove something. This is why Martin Luther says that religion is so appealing to people because it is the older brother option. It gives us something to better ourselves by. It's a way to prove ourselves and have the self-confidence we're so desperately seeking. But you see, God's grace, man, God's grace gives us the space to actually step out in faith and really grow. To let go of what we have done wrong, the missed opportunities in our past, because guess what? You were wrong. It's okay. Get over it. And to actually step out and do something new, knowing that your worth, your acceptance, is not tied up. And whether you prove it or not, fall short or make it all the way. And that we can do that because we can actually stop thinking that we're going to lose it all if we make a wrong move. Luke sets all this up. He actually tells three parables. Jesus tells three parables here. And at the start, before any of these parables, Jesus tells, Luke tells us who the audience is. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Younger brothers and older brothers. 
And the amazing thing that Jesus does is he doesn't end this parable. He doesn't wrap it up. He leaves it hanging. He brings no resolution. We don't know what the older brother chooses to do. But the message is clear that when we have, you have lived your life with something to prove, the hardest thing to do is to give yourself grace to not measure up. But you still need grace just as much as that younger brother does. The words of the father are, to me, incredible. It's God's word to all of us that have been trying to prove ourselves to him through obedience and faithfulness and presence while at times and maybe always hating the fact that we were tied to this, resenting that we could not do our own thing and go our own way. He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All that is mine is yours. And there is nothing you can do to lose that, and there's also nothing you can do to earn it. So stop trying and just accept it and enjoy it and be my child. That's God's call to you and I each and every day. That we never get beyond a point that we say, I needed grace back then. I've righted my ways. I'm on to something better now. You need grace now because there's nothing greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.